Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm grateful today to preach on such a softball and non-controversial text. (laughs) I love it, though. I've grown to love it very much. Uh, And I've officiated at over 100 weddings. I have the whole liturgy memorized. (laughs) You know, I know all about the vows and uh, where to stand and how to work with videographers and how to deal with organists, you know, all of it. I I love many aspects of conducting weddings, but what I love the most actually takes place after the ceremony is all over. I love uh, watching the new husband and wife have their first dance because 90 to 95% of the time, they have not rehearsed this in any way and sort of assume that the other person knows what they're doing. Now, at my first dance with my wife at our wedding, I realized in that moment, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So I said to her, how about we just spin in a circle really slowly? And she said, is that the best you can do? <laughs> she found out. You know? yeah. But I love the first dance because it's so awkward. And, it's, and there's all these missteps. But at the same time, there's something magical that's beginning to happen because they are beginning to cooperate. They're beginning to intuit something about the other person and what the other person wants or where the other person is going to step next. And they're beginning to uh, be patient with each other as they learn together. And it becomes an an icon, if you will, of the married life. And I'd like to speak today about the biblical perspective on marriage, but not that phrase, the biblical perspective on marriage, has often been weaponized to fight the culture wars If you've been at this church for more than two weeks, you know how much I hate the culture wars and have no interest in entering into them at all. Uh, I think uh, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, and that includes battling it out in the culture wars. I think it's disdainful. So I'm going to sidestep that and hopefully offer something different, which is just a positive, evocative, loving, and hopefully commendable vision of Christian marriage that is communicated in Holy Scripture And I think it's a needed word simply because society, and not just our society, but various societies in the past, different cultural groups have defined marriage in very different ways. There has been monogamy, and then there's been uh, monogamy light, where you can have uh, a divorce that is very easily accessed, so you can re-monogamize with somebody else and maybe do that a few times if it's not working for you. There is polygamy, there is polyamory, And after a Supreme Court decision in our country in 2015, marriage is now defined in the United States as as an affection contract between two people. 
any two people that you get up in front of other people and say how much you like the other person and think they're really nice and you want to make a commitment to them in front of others and but it's an affection contract that binds you and some people are now asking the question why just two people why not more than that but that question has been asked before in history it's not a new question and so because there are so many definitions of marriage and understandings of marriage and even motivations for marriage i think it's fitting to say or to ask, what does scripture teach about this? And uh, if we are Christians, how do we live into it? So I'm going to speak about marriage today as this sacred covenant between a husband and a wife that gives us a picture of something larger than the husband and the wife. It gives us a vision of what I'm going to call the eternal dance. So I'm going to speak about the dance as well as the dancers today. That is the concept of marriage and then the individual persons within marriage. But the concept is really important because really in Ephesians 5, uh, this text is not principally, not principally about dynamics and definitions of individual husbands and wives. In fact, it's about something bigger than this. Paul tells us this right in this passage that he is writing about a mystery that, that comes from the ground of being, a mystery that is sourced directly in God, that is at the heart of the human experience. And you'll notice that Paul says this in verse 32. As a capstone to the whole passage, he writes, this mystery, that is the mystery of marriage between a husband and a wife, is profound, meaning it's bottomless in its meaning, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, he's saying, I'm talking about marriage, but I'm kind of not. I mean, I am, but I'm talking about something much, much grander. Um, Marriage is something that is very core, not just to what occurs between a husband and a wife, but is core to the biblical message and the human story. In fact, I would go so far as to say, without too much hyperbole, that marriage is the message of the Bible. Marriage is the message of the Bible. It is the dance that is present in either the background or the foreground of the entire biblical narrative. Remember, Marriage is inferred in the beginning of creation, like right from the start. You have the Adam and Eve archetypal figures, which are displayed right from the start, not only as being in the image of God together, but also as the image of God, uh, they, are the, they are presumed to be married from the start. There's no marital ceremony between them. Adam, do you take this very new ribby wife, Eve, to be your... <laughs> Nothing. Like, it's just presumed that they are married. In fact, that's what the Genesis account is trying to say, that these things are built within the fabric of creation to the degree that it doesn't need to be stated that it's so obvious. That's what it's saying, right from the start in the Genesis account. And that archetype of husband and wife uh, is mirrored in the prophetic literature of ancient Israel. You see this in the Old Testament all the time. The primary familial motif of God's relationship to Israel is not father to son. In the Old Testament, it is husband to wife. Israel is displayed as very often the adulterous wife that Yahweh keeps chasing after, uh, regardless of what she does. That's what the whole book of Hosea is about. The New Testament picks up this concept in Jesus' own teaching about marriage, which was read to you today, and at his first public miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The Old Testament literature said that the day of the Lord or the Messiah's 
initiatory reign or the signal that the Messiah is here to set up his kingdom would occur at um, would occur and the dis- the display of that reign would be shown at a wedding that that everything would come together and be rebonded again in this great marital ceremony and there would be enough wine for everybody so it's not surprising that Jesus at his first miracle sets the stage for that marital motif where God is wedding his people yet again. And St. Paul talks about it, of course, as being the archetype of Christ and the church. In other words, he is saying, if you want to get the clearest vision you can about heaven's intention to earth, about the connection of God and humanity or Christ and the church, look at a marriage and you'll get the icon that you need of what it looks like to have God chasing after a wife and a wife receiving um, that chase. So that's, uh, that's the, the, the uh, biblical story, but it ultimately caps in Revelation. At the end of Revelation, what do we have? A marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in which Christ and the church are married, beautifully adorned for one another. So the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is marriage, unavoidably marriage. Uh, And this is Paul's point in Ephesians 5. It's why he ends the way he does, saying, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church because he realizes that human marriage always points to something bigger. I uh, have a a friend who is uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, priest, and he's a wonderful man. And he says that one uh, one of the things that he does every morning is when he washes his face, he cups his hand under the faucet, and splashes the water on his face to remind himself of his own baptism. He said, obviously, the water in my hands is nasty, iron-filled, you know, sulfuric acid-filled, well, hopefully not, um, of water from Ambridge, Pennsylvania that I'm splashing on my face. But it's a reminder of a much more impressive and grand and universalizing washing that occurs in baptism. The same thing can be true with earthly marriages. They are there to point us to a greater reality. They're the localization of the ultimate archetype of heaven's bond with earth, of Christ and the church. And so, therefore, what I want to say right from the start is whether you're married or not, want to be married or not, divorced, single, or you are, you know, you're, you're, you, you've been in the happiest marriage or the most miserable marriage, Ephesians 5 is for everybody in the church, whether you are attached or you're not, because the dance is ultimately about Christ and the church, and you have a place in that dance. And so that's something about the dance. Now let me say something about the individual dancers. Uh, He speaks to both wives and husbands. Wives in verse 22, when he says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 25, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this text has been abused, mishandled, and weaponized time after time. Not always, but often to support the fledgling authority of very insecure men that need to somehow lord themselves over women. Uh, It seems that the men didn't read the whole passage, but uh, there's, there's, there's that. But we'll get into that in a minute. But here, here's one way it's been um, mishandled. Some men uh, disregard the last portion of the passage uh, and, and therefore don't take their responsibilities seriously. And some women have reacted to what Paul is writing here because of their own, not always, 
but often their own negative romantic entanglements with terrible men, and therefore impute to this text a negativity that Paul uh, did not believe in and would not affirm. So we all come to passages like this with baggage. But it's important to note that from the start, and again, as I've told you with some frequency, not just to exegete the text, but let the text of Scripture exegete you. Let it examine your own biases and issues as well, because we are hardly neutral observers of even the most sacred of texts. So that's one way it's mishandled. But also, it's often misread. This text has something to do with gender roles. Gender roles. That This is principally about men and women. Um, in a word, no. It's about marital roles, not gender roles. He's not here addressing a single men and single women, uh, in their own gender. He's saying something to husbands and wives. This is about people that are married. Uh, sometimes I meet Grove City uh, students, um, uh, especially young men, who are very well-intentioned, and they want to do the right thing in a new relationship that is, you know, you know, it's two weeks old. And they come to me, and they say the same thing. I can just predict it every single time. You know, Ethan, my heart is strangely warmed. I, I think she's the... <laughs> no, really. I think she's the one, and, you know... Like, I'm telling her all my dark secrets after a week and a half. I'm like, oh, well, that's one way to live your life. And, um, and they also say something like, I'm just, I just really want to lead her well. And I'm like, ooh, you're killing me. Killing me, bro. Um, it is, let, let me be very clear. It is your responsibility as a man or a woman in God to be a person of, of growth and integrity. I do believe that. Like, you, you want to be a decent human being for another decent human being, right? But... You're not her husband. Why are you using the word of leadership at all? First of all, the word leadership technically is not in this passage. Secondly, why do you think you have that role if you've known somebody for two weeks and you're not married? Not, no offense, it's just weird, okay? Like, maybe work it out. Anyway, um, so I think it can be misread. This is not about gender roles. It's about marital roles. Now, to get to what Paul is saying in this passage, those are some things he's not saying. What is he saying? First of all, the dancers differ. I think that's important to recognize right from the start. It's obvious, and yet in our, in our day it's often glossed over. They differ in gender, that male and female in a covenanted union form a marriage. Uh, God created this, them in this way so that they become one flesh. And that's a reference, it's a sexual reference to anatomical differentiation. Wasn't that a good PG way of saying it? Anatomical <laughs> differentiation that, by the way, has the capacity to create life. That's important because human beings are both male and female made in the image of God and yet differentiated so that when they have a one flesh union, they have the capacity to create life. That's just part and parcel of the created order. And more than that, it's a reflection of God. When God makes human beings in his image, he makes them to image him. And what is God's image? Sameness and differentiation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, and yet differentiatable, that the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. And yet, they create life, just like a differentiated man and a woman in a covenantal arrangement have the capacity to create life. That is reflected here, of course, in this passage not only do they differ in gender, they differ in what could be called principal relational function. According to Paul, and he's painting with a broad brush, but according to Paul, one embodies the quality of respect, the other embodies the quality of love. More on that later. But now let's get into the individual dancers, wives. 
Wives embody the church for Christ. He writes in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The core principle and word there is submission. Later, though, Paul uh, uh, communicates the same idea with the word respect. So they seem to be uh, similar or uh, almost entirely the same synecdoches for one, one for another, submission or respect, which means deference to a head, deference to an initiator in the role of the dance. And he also adds a qualifier. He says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, that's often been preached in this way. Your husband is General Patton. Do whatever he tells you, uh, right? Uh, submit because you don't want to make Jesus mad, and your husband is Jesus for you, and so don't make him mad. Um, in a word, no. Um, um, that, that, by the way, is a misunderstanding of the very Lord to which Paul is referring. Who is this Lord? It's Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus was like? Not only with humanity broadly, but with women specifically. I can't think of anybody in the first century that treated women with more dignity, honor, and respect than Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he is the one who came among us to serve, not to lord his authority, but to serve. He was not a tyrant, not an abuser, not a manipulator, and he held women in this high esteem. And so whenever Paul is saying, as to the Lord, he has that Lord in mind, that you'd be willing to yield. You'd be willing to yield to somebody who loved you in that way and was a servant in that way. And I think in our own culture, we see submission as weakness and assertion as the only strength. If you're not aggressive or assertive, then you're some doormat that just gets walked on by other people. If that's what we believe, then we think the Lord of life, Jesus himself, was a doormat. Because he loved submission. Jesus himself embodied submission. This is why he says in John's gospel numerous times, uh, in one way or another, I only do what I see my father doing. He really loved to say over to you. He really loved deference. He really loved trusting that somebody else had his, his best in mind. He may have learned that from you know, his mother. Whenever his mother received that bizarre supernaturalist encounter with the angel that said, by the way, your life's about to change, uh, she says, okay. She says, may it be unto me according to your word. She yields. She submits. I think we've lost that. I think that we always, I think that we have this, um, what was that overplayed movie about the circus well, I don't know. What was it called? The Greatest Showman, right? It's the bearded lady. She thinks, this is me. And the whole idea, and I like the song. It's catch. I know. And I feel bad for her. I do. She really, you know, she was very nice. But, but the, um, and she was terribly treated. I understand. I understand. I understand. But the whole concept of the song is, I'm going to assert myself. This is who I am. And if you don't deal with it, you know, I, I kind of want to shoot you. I mean, that's really the song. But that's our attitude. Like, I have prerogative. What about my voice? What about my truth? Like, I'm living my true life now. And like, you have to like, get out the way, get out the way. But the thing is, um, there are situations in life where it's actually far stronger and far more bold to say, okay, like, we're going to try this your way for once. And this is what is embodied in the Lord of life, in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus learned to do this. And so submission, friends, is not weakness or a lack of personhood. And if it's taught that way, those people don't understand submission. They see it as a ruthless subjection that the text is not speaking about. 
Okay, so that's something about wives. And then he says something about husbands, who are the embodiment of Christ for the church. He says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The core principle here is love. Note that uh, Paul's instructions to husbands are almost triple the length of his instructions to wives. Almost triple the length. And the qualifier that he gives is similar to what he gives to wives. When he says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, he says to husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the qualifier. Love in the manner of your own personal and complete annihilation. Not just give her the window seat on the plane, let her watch the annoying uh, chick flick on Netflix and just grin and bear it. Not, you know... Uh, I mean, it's, it's beyond that. It's beyond, why don't you um, make, a, make a change in your uh, labor and work environment so that she has a chance to really thrive in the labor force? It's more than that, you know? It's, it's more than uh, letting her make, uh, letting her have her way when it comes to certain decisions. That she, it's saying, be willing to suffer. Be willing to let your breath and blood go for the well-being of your wife. Be willing to receive in yourself diminishment to the nth degree so that your wife thrives, that you would give up yourself. That's the evidence of your love for her. Now, notice the form of this love has a godly quality to it. He says, by doing this, when you love in that Christic way, you end up sanctifying her by the word. Notice then, the husband's work is not to turn his wife into what he desires. The husband's vision is not her highest calling. He is there to support her life in Christ, someone higher than himself. Um, I think this is a, a beautiful r reminder of what true leadership looks like or authority looks like or initiating looks like. Because remember how Jesus reconfigures authority. Some people, you know, when I meet some people, you know, you always know that a rector, let's meet, you know, I'm one of those, uh, or like a, a professor or a, a teacher or a, an administrator is really on their, like, you push them to the nth degree when they pull out the authority card. When, they, when I would say, well, I'm the rector of this place, so I'm the decider, to quote George W. Bush, I'm the decider, and I decide what happens here. Like, like, don't play that card very often, friends. Like, Jesus taught us a lot about authority and was very subversive in how we understood authority, and he uh, reconfigures it when he says the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not to be so with you. Remember that the greatest among you is the one who serves, who serves. And so he's giving us a vision of that servanthood in the husband who's willing to lay down his life for the betterment of his wife. Three concluding notes about these individual uh, um, persons within this dance. Uh, very briefly, first, neither husband nor wife are to coerce the other party. Paul is writing here to individual wives and individual husbands, asking them to voluntarily agree to this arrangement. He never says, men, get your wives to submit to you. Or women, make sure your husbands love you in the way you deserve. Dang it, in Greek. He doesn't do that. <laughs> this is voluntary. 
Second, the marital dynamics for wives and husbands, love and submission, are not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. After all, all Christians are called to love. That's why Jesus would say rather plainly, love one another as I have loved you, which involved single people, married people, husbands, wives. And also all Christians are called to submit. That's why in the verse that precedes our reading today, he writes to all Christians, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submission is just good all around. In a marriage, one tends to lean into one quality and the other into the other quality, and yet they are to inform our Christian consciousness more broadly. Third, the shape of these dynamics, love and submission, are very similar. They're not that different. They have to do with deference and sacrifice, being willing to accept diminishment so that the other person thrives. And so, friends, this is Paul's sketch of the marital life, the husband that initiates for the well-being of the wife, of her personally and her spiritually, and the wife who receives that initiation and flourishes because of it and is willing to respect her husband uh, in return. Paul's description of the dance and the dancers in marriage is purposefully subversive and intentional. What is he trying to do here? He's trying, if I can put it this curtly, to overthrow hell. He is trying to overthrow evil, exploitation, and abuse. Because within his cultural context, and and often within our own, uh, those kind of intimate relationships are used for manipulative ends. And there is nothing worse than a bad marriage in which these qualities are not mirrored in people. Where husbands do not love their wives as Christ loved the church, and where women absolutely despise and resent their husbands. That is a, that's the recipe for hell. There is nothing more hellish than a marriage gone wrong. And alternatively, there's nothing more heavenly than a marriage in which these things are present and present deeply under the umbrella of grace. Um, It is to overthrow the evil and exploitation of the world if we capture this vision. George MacDonald, the poet and preacher, author, wrote this. The one principle of hell is, I am my own. I am my own king and subject. I am the center from which go out my thoughts. I am Alpha and Omega. My own glory is and ought to be my chief care, always and forever. My ambition is to gather the regards of all. My kingdom is constructed of those I can bring to acknowledge my greatness over them. Whenever we enter marriage with that perspective, uh, we bring ruination to ourselves and to the one to whom we're married. But when marriage is governed by the principles that Paul uh, commends here, we see hell and its power begin to be unmade. So friends, this is the biblical vision of marriage from the pen of St. Paul. Uh, and this is why the church, composed of married people, widowed people, divorced people, single people, regards marriage in high esteem as a God-ordained covenant. The covenant of marriage, by the way, in the Bible is not adiaphora, meaning a minor matter, equivalent to whether or not you wear hats in church. It was a big debate about that in the 1940s. Like, should people wear hats? Um, But it's not a minor matter. Like, should we speak in tongues today? When should we baptize people? And, you know, and just saying, well, those things are debatable. It's very mysterious. And we don't really know. Marriage is not among those mysteries. Marriage is actually carefully constructed in Scripture and clearly taught. 
And so we uphold what scripture teaches about marriage. And we also must, as the church, be very patient with those from our wider world who come to the church from a variety of marital and familial forms. Some of those forms and marital understandings may be flawed, but as you know, I hope you know, following Jesus is a lifelong journey and working out our false ideas, and all of us have them, regarding marriage can take a while. So we're here to be patient with people as they begin to see the beauty that is represented in Holy Scripture. So um, let me conclude with this word. I think one of the reasons marriage is now being slammed or abandoned uh, and why many people doubt the validity of, I don't like this word, traditional marriage. I don't, I'm not interested in that term. Let's call it biblical marriage. One of the reasons why it's kind of bombed in our day is because marriage, because of the fall, has been devastated and damaged. Uh, the fall has introduced into the human drama and into human marriage endless missteps and frustrations and tears. The Bible itself chronicles the devolution of marriage. How you know when sin is really taking hold is that a person's marriage fails in the Bible. This happens all the time. Uh, and we see that in our own experience. Some of you have told me, and I understand it completely, look, my parents created a nightmare scenario for all of us by teaching us through their terrible examples how awful life can be when you're married, and I don't want any part of it. I'm entirely sympathetic with you. If that was what I experienced day after day, I might think the same thing. And here's what's so difficult. Every husband and every wife comes to their marital dance, whether they see it or not, holding a bunch of scorpions <laughs> for the other person. Some of those scorpions you know about, other scorpions you can't even see. You don't know anything about them. They're there in your character, but you don't know that they're there. And let me tell you about some of the scorpions that I've seen when uh, I've done marital counseling or met with individuals who have troubled marriages. Uh, I think that the scorpions are principally the opposite of the virtues that St. Paul teaches in this passage. A very large scorpion in the hands of some wives is disrespect. For what it's worth, if you want to know how to kill your husband, I mean that spiritually. If you want to devastate and ruin your husband, potentially beyond repair, shame him. Shame him publicly. Worse than that, mock all men and do it constantly because of some terrible relationship you had in the past or some uh, aggressive idiot that was cruel to you. Take that out on every man. And your husband is not an idiot. He'll deduce that you mean him too because you're speaking about all men and he happens to be one of them. But do that. Do it repeatedly and do it in public. You'll kill him. You'll poison him. You'll make him want to run a million miles away, if not physically, certainly in his heart. That is a way to do irreparable harm. What about husbands? Here's a scorpion you often give your wives or could give your wife if you're not careful. Devalue her. D diminish her. Every time that she cries or is upset about something or angry about something, say that she's being hysterical and really needs to get her emotions under control because you, after all, or the more reasonable party, right? I meet a lot of men who think, well, men are logical and women are emotional. 
But these same men, in all of their logic, get very enraged by the slightest thing that goes against their rationality. And I have to tell them, hey, boys, rage is an emotion. Um, It's a cheap emotion, but it's an emotion. You're being hysterical. Um, uh, But diminish her. Diminish her. Act like her, her tears and her problems don't matter. Diminish her humanity day after day, week after week, year after year. You'll poison her. You'll make her die inside. Uh, that's often what happens. I've seen it too many times not to comment on it. And I think we can hurt each other terribly when we make these missteps in marriage, when we carry these scorpions. And so how is marriage preserved from that kind of acrimony? How can marriage not only survive, but be lovely and vivacious and fun and interesting? How can it create the mystery for other people who see a good marriage and say, maybe there's more going on? Maybe there's something of heaven that can be deduced from the love that this couple has for one another. Well, let me leave you with a little gospel hope today. This is a reflection from my friend, a theologian and pastor named Paul Zoll. He writes, Christianity assumes a bottomless need on the part of every single man and woman. It says to both husbands and wives, you are both at fault in everything. And the fault is in your chemistry and in your head, for we are all under the power of sin, a la Romans 3. And the chief sin in, the chief sin in marriage is competition. The man thinks that his difficult and demanding job deserves more credit than his wife's needlepoint shop or her raising of the children day after day while he's at work. On the other hand, the woman may believe that only if she is chairing the board of Goldman Sachs can she bring credible equality to the marriage. Unless she is ramming her head against the glass ceiling, her weight in the partnership is not equal. The wife is just as enslaved as the husband. From the standpoint of grace, both partners are equally mistaken. The best thing that could happen is that they both fall from these stupendously misconceived ideas of prize winning and land together on the same gray hill of sand like pole vaulters who have failed to clear the bar. Then they could observe their own failures and the failure of the other and simply laugh about it. Grace demolishes the idea of success. It cheerily mocks it. Do you remember the popular song from the 1970s entitled The Pina Colada Song? The singer wanted out of his marriage so badly that he answered a romantic want ad in the newspaper for someone who liked pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. What happened when the two finally arranged to meet? The biggest surprise of their lives. There was the man sitting across from his wife and the wife sitting across from her husband. And the lyrics finish this way. It was my own lovely lady. And she said, oh, it's you. (laughs) And we laughed for a minute. And I said, I never knew. The unsatisfied partners were both looking for the same thing. They just didn't know it. They fell down from an Olympian height of judgment, laugh for a minute, and begin again. They begin again from humility and now with higher hopes. What does marriage need? What does your marriage need? What does the beleaguered husband and wife need? The wife does not principally need her husband, and the husband does not principally need his wife. Instead, both principally need Christ. 
a Christ for them, a Christ of undying pity, a nimble Christ who already knows the dance of life, for he's already passed this way. A Christ who can teach us the steps again. A Christ who is devotedly and lovingly present for desperately flawed husbands and wives, whose hearts are stockpiled with regret and resentment. And when those beleaguered spouses discover that Christ is 100% clemency, 100% clemency for them, they can learn step by step to graciously dance together again. And that dance, inspired by redemption songs, will become strong and elegant, will become a vision of the archetype of heaven, and then the dance floor will be laden with brightest gold. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not take your